Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. Well, again, welcome to North Main Street Church of God. I'm Pastor Brandon. And uh, we've been going through a series this month entitled Peace in the Wilderness. And we've been looking at the theme of the story of the Israelites after the Exodus coming through the Red Sea out of Egypt and into this wilderness region. They're there for about a year. Uh, and uh, they, they, as we mentioned last week, observed the Passover meal for a second time. We talked about peace last week in remembering the past as the Israelites had left Egypt and are now remembering how God had set them free from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And we talked about some of the things of our past we don't want to remember and we don't want to rehash or bring back up, but there are many mile markers and points in our past that point us toward the future in a way that's very positive. So there's, there's this value in remembering our past. I want to talk about peace in transition today. And I know it seems ironic that we are having a presidential transition and all that stuff, your trans, transition of powers and all that. This sermon was prepared well before this time. So don't think that there's any political overtures in this, okay? Uh, we're looking today at Numbers chapter 27, and Number, Numbers chapter 27 also somewhat parallels Deuteronomy chapter 34. We're looking at the story of Moses. He's come to the end of his life. As we'll see in a moment, he's not able to enter the promised land because of a disobedience that he did against God in the wilderness during the 40 years of wilderness wandering. So now last week we talked about one year out of, ex, out of the Exodus, out of Egypt. But then after that one year, through the people's disobedience, they had to wander in this wilderness region, what we would call uh, the western or the far western part of Saudi Arabia today and just beneath where Israel is today in around the Sinai Peninsula, if you look at it on a modern-day map. So they set up camp, and they move over and over and over again for 40 years, but they are no closer to the promised land than they were when they got there a year later. So keep this in mind. Why did they wander in the wilderness for 40 years? They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of their own disobedience. When they came to the edge of the promised land, 12 spies were sent into the region what would have been, then been known as Canaan, where all these pagan nations lived. And these 12 spies came back after 40 days of checking out the territory. And they reported to Moses and the leaders, listen, this land is awesome. It's, it, it bears fruit like we've never seen. But the people there are huge compared to us. Actually, we look like grasshoppers compared to them, and they thought we looked like that too. Like, oh, you guys are cute, right? That's kind of what they were thinking. And so there were 10 of the 12 that said, there's no way we'll be able to take this land from this group of people. But they had neglected to remember that God had promised them, I will drive them out ahead of you. Right? 
This isn't even in my sermon, but many of you right now are standing on the edge of whatever you might consider to be a big decision in your life that God may be calling you to, and you have to fully vet that out and make sure, but it could be your promised land, and you're standing right on the edge of it, but the people on the other side or the tasks on the other side are way too big for you to conquer in your own power and strength, and so you somewhat cower at the thought of stepping into that. You have one of two choices. You can say, God, I know you've called me to this, but I can't do it. That's one choice. Or you can say, God, I trust you because you've called me to this, and you wouldn't call me to something you wouldn't see me through. Okay? It somewhat ties into this passage today, because here we come after these 40 years of wandering in the wilderness where God basically says, because you guys didn't believe and trust in me that I would go ahead of you and drive out the Canaanites so that you could have the land I promised you, and I promised your forefather Abraham, because of that, for every day that the spies were in the wilderness, I'm going to tag on a year of wandering in this wilderness region. You will be a people without a home. You will be nomadic, wandering people. And the whole book of Numbers is all about the 40 years of wilderness wandering. Okay? We get to chapter 27 toward the end of the book. God allows Moses to look out over this land. He, he takes him to a high top mountain in the region of Moab. And that's a whole different story. I'm, I'm wanting to go and give you a description of Moab, but I'm not going to do that. But anyway, it's right on the edge of the promised land, close to the northern part of the Dead Sea, on the eastern side of the Jordan River. There's Mount Pisgah and Mount Nebo there. So God allows Moses to go up to the top of those mountains, which you can go to today. And it's actual uh, um, a marker there that says, we think this is where Moses was, because you can look out over, and to the left you see the large body of water called the Dead Sea. And then you see the Jordan River away going off into a distance, and you can look out across this land into this promised land, this land of promise that looks so bountiful, looks pretty amazing. And so here Moses is allowed to go. But this passage specifically talks about the transition of power. Because Moses can't lead them in, somebody else has to. So let's take a look at this. One day, Numbers 27, verse 12. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Those of you at home, if you want to, turn in your Bibles there with me. Uh, I didn't forget you. I know you're there. So welcome to our service today. One day, the Lord said to Moses, Climb one of the mountains east of the river and look out over the land I've given the people of Israel. After you've seen it, you will die like your brother Aaron in the wilderness. Aaron, uh, uh, you will die like your brother Aaron, for you both rebelled against my instructions in the wilderness of Zin. Then the people of Israel rebelled, and you failed to demonstrate my holiness to them at the waters. These are the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zen. I mentioned this, if not last week, the week before. So God, the people are begging for water. We're going to die out here. You let us out here to die, Moses. You're so stupid. Of course, Moses doesn't like that very much. He gets a little irritated. He goes to God, and God says, that's all right. Give them water, but here's how I want you to do it. Go over to that rock, and I want you to speak to it. It'll bring forth water. Moses says, okie dokie, and he goes over to the rock, and he smacks the rock with a stick that he also used to part the Red Sea with, or the Sea of Reeds, depending on what version you read. And he smacked it twice with a stick, 
Because of that rebellion, Moses was unable to enter the promised land. That's what this is referring to. Verse 15, then Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, you are the God who gives breath to all creatures. Please appoint a new man as leader for the community. Give them someone who will guide them wherever they go and will lead them into battle. So the community of the Lord will not be like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord replied, Take Joshua, son of Nun, who has a spirit in him, and lay your hands on him. Present him to Eleazar, the priest, before the whole community, and publicly commission him to lead the people. Transfer some of your authority to him, so the whole community of Israel will obey him. When direction from the Lord is needed, Joshua will stand before Eleazar, the priest, who will use the Urim and Thummim is another word that's missing from here, but they knew what it was talking about. One of the sacred lots cast before the Lord to determine his will. This is how Joshua and the rest of the community of Israel would determine everything they should do. So Moses did as the Lord commanded, and then he presented Joshua to Eleazar, the priest, and the whole community. Moses laid his hands on him and commissioned him to lead the people, just as the Lord had commanded through Moses. Now, the key point this morning is this. There is peace in the godly transfer of authority and leadership. Why do I say that? And this is not because we're planning an exit. The Linhart family right now is not planning an exit, maybe next year. But not now. I'm just kidding. I just like to get rumors started. Anyway, and so there is, this is key. I have seen transitions in churches go horribly awry. You know why? Because people get in the way. And I don't, hear me out when I say that. When God is calling for a transition, he's the one that must always lead the way. Why do you think Moses didn't say, hey God, there needs to be a new leader for the people and I got a guy picked out for you. And this is what it's gonna look like. I want you to bless it. No, what does he do? He goes to God and he says, and he says, uh, the people need a leader. You know I can't go in. And I don't want them to be like people without a shepherd. He's been with these people for 40 years now. He has a vested interest in their success, but as much as Moses has a vested interest in the people of God's success, how much more does God have an interest in their success? And so Moses, in his later years, is wise enough to realize God will do what God will do. And it's not up to me to determine what he will do. But I would like to know what the transition is. And so God gives him a clear directive. There should be godly transfer of authority and leadership. At every transition of everybody of Christ or every spiritual organization that centers itself on the authority of Christ and the Holy Spirit, because it's at those points in time when the community of faith is at the biggest risk of the enemy getting his way in there and running ripshod over the transition. I've seen people side, get on both sides. Well, I like this person. Well, I like this person. Well, I like that person. I like this person. Well, who does God like? I, I remember um, being told, and I probably shouldn't tell this, but the, the team that brought Sarah Lee and I on that vetted us to be the pastors here um, went through months and months of research to figure out, well, 
who are we going to get? They had several applicants and pastors from around the United States, some of them here in Western PA. And uh, it came down to two guys, myself and another guy. And um, at one point in time, they said, in this process of, of trying to figure out who the next pastor should be of North Main Street Church of God, uh, somebody looked around on the, the whiteboards and paper all around the room of the qualities they were looking for and, and rightly mentioned, you know, Jesus wouldn't even make the cut to be our pastor here. See, this is what happens oftentimes when communities of faith take the world's way of doing things and say, we've got to do it this way. But see, the world's way of doing things is so upside down to the way God does things that oftentimes I think we allow room for the enemy to get in and destroy what God wants to build up. So anyway, side note, that's that. Um, what can we learn from this passage? Is that Moses... Even though he couldn't enter the promised land, he could, have, he could have been one of two ways. He could have been bitter and angry and resentful that God, hey God, I just hit the rock twice with the stick. What's the big deal? These people did worse than I did. Has that crossed your mind? These people, they've cursed you. They've doubted you. They didn't trust you. Moses, you didn't trust me either. How many of you have kids, and, and your, or older kids, and your kids say, well, they did it too. Well, it's, it's not my fault. See, Moses could have done that. Moses could have, in his immaturity, which it doesn't seem like he had at this stage, said, well, that's not fair. I don't like the way you do things. And he could have... Kicked at the goads. That's a biblical term. Look it up. Uh, he could have gotten really mad and pushed back at God. But it, this, this passage indicates something to, to, so totally different about Moses. What's it? He had peace of mind. Moses had the peace of mind. Okay? We call this in the New Testament the peace that passes understanding. Peace of mind. Moses could have been angry and all those things, but he had peace of mind. He was resigned to the fact that he wouldn't lead them. We don't catch any hint of, of bitterness here. Actually, what we catch is a heart of compassion and love and mercy. He has to sit in his own consequences, as we all do when we mess up. There's always a consequence for our action, be it good or bad. And he had to sit with the consequences. There was no negotiating. He knew he was wrong, and he suffered the consequence. But his concern and compassion was for the people of God. You know, God, you've, you've given me the privilege to lead these people for all these years and yes, they have been a pain in the butt, not only to you, but to me. But I love them. And I care for them. And I don't want them to be alone without a leader. I know, God, I haven't done it perfectly. That's the reason why I don't get to go into the land. And the next leader probably won't do it perfectly either. But they are going to fail miserably if they don't have somebody who's ordained by you, God, to lead them. Please appoint somebody. He had that peace of mind. 
I think what's interesting with Moses' response to finding a successor to lead the people of the promised land is twofold. Again, he came to grips with the fact that he wouldn't be allowed to enter there. There's some of you that are here today that are still struggling with the fact that things aren't fair. How many of you have those concerns from time to time? It's just not fair, right? It's not fair that this person gets off scot-free, but I am the one that has to bear the burden. It's not fair that this happens and that. It's not fair when I get accused of X, Y, or Z and this person doesn't and they do the same thing. I want you to hear, when we do that, it's something that has been done from the beginning of time. Genesis chapter 3. What happens in the wilderness, or not in the wilderness, in the garden, after Adam and Eve have partaken of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and God comes walking through the garden to find them, and he can't find them, right? At least the story speaks that. Where are you guys? Is this hide and seek? What are we doing here? And finally, they come out of the bushes with their nakedness covered, with leaves from the garden trees and bushes, we were naked and afraid. How'd you know you were naked? And then begins this process, as we often do in our own sinful nature. Adam said, it's the woman you gave me. She gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. Now God could have said, well, you're an idiot. I mean, if she jumped off a bridge, would you go jump off a bridge? You know, I want you to see the connection and the correlation. Nothing is new. When you think it's unfair now, it's been unfair since the fall. And one of the things we're reminded of in the New Testament in Romans 8, not 8, 28, 323, and I really bombed this a few years ago. Okay, it is not in the archives. We cut this clip out. But uh, I I stumbled over my words. Anyway, Romans 3.23 says, "Mm, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, glory or glorious standard, depending on your version of Scripture. So when we think it's unfair, consider that in contrast to a God who is perfect and has never failed. God could say, you want to talk about unfair? I've given you life. I've given you hope. I've given you everything under the sun, and still you reject me. I've tried to woo you back to myself. I've tried to love you into the kingdom. I've given my son for you. And it's still not enough for half of you. What more do you want? You want to talk about fairness? I don't deserve this because I'm perfect, God says. No, he doesn't say that. Instead, it says, for God so loved the world that all who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. See, this is the kind of God we serve, that we worship, the kind of God that pursues you and has pursued me. And will continue to pursue you for your, till your dying days. 
And you can grovel and complain that everything is against you, the odds are stacked against you, or you can stand up and stand on the rock and be firmly planted in faith and in truth who is Jesus Christ and say, the world's unfair, but God, I trust you. In your kingdom, it is perfect. I can live in the kingdoms of this world, but I'm a different citizen of a different kingdom, and that's who rules over my heart. See, that's the kind of thing that Moses knew that gave him peace of mind, is that he knew he was in the wrong. God had, he knew that God had every right to punish him. And mature people own up to their mistakes and their sins. They admit them, they confess them, they repent of them, and then they move on. But they move on in God's glory and in God's way and not in their own. And sometimes they stumble along that way. It's been happening a lot lately that I get people asking me, so is there a line where I could lose God's grace and salvation? And we are of a tradition that do believe that you can turn and walk away from God and that you could exempt yourself from that grace. I know there are certain traditions out there that say once you're saved, you're always saved. And if you walk away, you were never saved to begin with. But I'm not willing to make that judgment call because that's not my place. I have seen people make a legitimate life change and commitment to Jesus Christ. And later on in life, through whatever series of circumstances, completely say, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And walk away in complete rejection of there being a God or having a faith in God or Jesus Christ. And counting it as rubbish. I would not have ever called them a non-Christian during that stage of life where they truly had made a commitment to Christ. So we are of that tradition. So where do you lose the grace in the tradition based on what we understand of Scripture? Here's this. I believe, and I didn't always believe this way. I grew up in a tradition that if I stubbed my toe and said a naughty word, I was going straight to hell. Unless I confessed and got on my face before God. Here's what I know about God's grace. Through the writings of Paul, through the work and teachings of Jesus, is that God's grace is sufficient for me. And my weakness is when he is made strong. So does, Now Paul addresses this. So, oh good, go ahead and become a believer in Christ, trust in God, and then live however you want to, because when you're weakest, God is made strong. So go live it up. Actually, Paul addresses that in Romans 5 or 6, and he says, should I continue to sin that grace may abound all the more? Uh-uh. No, you shouldn't, because that proves that God is not living in you. No. So, so where's the line? We all want to know. Where's that? Why do we want to know where the line is? <laughs> so we can push the line. Okay, where's that line? You know, I, I want to I wanna be able to. Now, we don't say this. I'm going to get right up to the edge. We won't say that. But we want to know where the line is for full disclosure. We do that with taxes. We do that with the laws. 
I can drive five miles an hour over the speed limit. The police aren't going to pull me over for five miles an hour over the speed limit. I can push that line. I know the limit's not five miles an hour or more. And some of you laughing know what I'm talking about. Right? I mean, we know where the line is in our, in our laws of our land. So what do we do? We push the line. We push the limit. God, God extends that grace. It covers a multitude of sin, as Jesus tells us, through his blood of the covenant. I think what it takes is a complete rejection of God and walking away from the faith to exempt yourself from grace. I know a lot of godly people who from time to time do flub up. I'm not confident enough to say that they're going to hell at that point. What I am confident enough to say is that God's grace is sufficient. In your weakness, you're made strong. Now, here's what I, here's what I liken what Paul calls the race. We run the race with endurance. How many of you have ever run before? And I'm not talking in a comp- competitive race. Just tell me if you've ever run before. How many of you have ever run and have really run hard and have fallen? Yes. Right? We all have. Unless you're perfect and then that's, anyway. So when you run, and I, I used to be a I won't say competitive, I never competed, but I ran in some races, you guys, some of you know that. When you run, and you run long distances, your body, um, your body tends to go into overdrive after a while. The first, for, for me, the first two to three miles were the most grueling. But if I could get past the first two to three miles uh, and, and run 10 mile stretches, I knew that if I could just get past that first couple miles, I'd be okay. Because my body did something like going into overdrive. It's like I was in first or second gear for the first couple miles. And my, like that, my engine's winding up. And then you get to mile two or three and you're like, you know, it's like, okay, I could do this, right? But I tell you, when you keep running, you get tired. You constantly need to be filling yourself. There are these stations along long races where you get these energy packs and squeeze in while you're running and still keep going. There's cups of water and water stations, right, that you just chug water and keep running. You see, God wants to continue to fill you along this race. But there will be times, more than likely, when you'll stumble. In a moment of weakness, when your muscles and your legs are wanting to give out and you and you stumble. And you're going to skin a knee, and you're going to have the wound to remind you when you fell. See, this is what the walk of faith looks like, ladies and gentlemen. The only one who have ever done it perfectly was Christ. Without fault, without failure, which is the reason why he is the only one that could save us from sin and death. It could be the perfect sacrifice. But because you've, here's the thing, because he did that doesn't give you license to continue to sin. But if you sin, or when you sin, Scripture says, there is an advocate who intercedes for you with the Father. Who sits at the right hand of God now? Christ. Advocating for you and I. Where does God's grace extend? It extends to you and I through the advocate, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for you and me. The point of exemption from grace is a complete and total rejection of God and Jesus Christ. Okay. Sorry about that. Let's move on. 
Promise of a future for God's people is the next thing we learn from this. There is peace in the air, not just for Moses to have peace of mind that the people are going to be cared for, but there's also this promise of a future for God's people. Guess what? I know right now during the political tumult of our nation, a lot of people of faith are wondering, where are our religious liberties going to land? Is it going to get better or going to get worse? And I know this is being broadcast online. Facebook could shut it down because I'm even talking about this, right? Where, what, what's going to happen? We don't know. Quite honestly, we don't know from year to year what's going to happen. Even when we have a leader that we consider to be on our side in that seat. We just don't know. But one of the promises we do have is that God loves his people. Actually, he loves all people, but he also loves his people who are called by his name. Okay? And what we know about that is that no matter what happens, he sustains his people during a myriad of different circumstances and throughout all history. When Israel lost their own nation through the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and then you have the Greeks, and then the Romans, or the, the, the Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans come onto the scene. Were God's people completely extinct? No, just because they didn't have a nation or a land anymore didn't mean that God was done with them. Now they were under his judgment, which is why they were where they were, living how they were. But God always sustains a remnant people of faithful followers that don't bow to the gods of the world or of society or peer pressure, that are willing to stand firm in truth when the rest of the world is saying that what you're standing on is wrong. The faithful few that stand firm in the truth, though they may have their bodies executed, have eternity and glory with God forever. Jesus says in the Gospels, don't concern yourself with the person who could kill only the body. Be more concerned about the one who could take the body and the soul and cast it into hell. Who's he talking about? Where does your fear lie? Does it lie in humans or do you have a holy fear and reverence for God? See, Jesus saying that wants us to put things into perspective. Right now, when our eyes are focused on the current situation in our society and in our culture, when we are focused solely on that without any thought for God's desires, then we get so sucked in to the dialogue, to the anger, to the anxiety, that we become a part of the problem instead of part of the solution. See, one of the things that Jesus did masterfully is he came at a time in history when the Roman government was in charge. The Jewish leaders had so run ransack over the traditions of, of Judaism that the people didn't really understand who God was and what God was like. You have the Romans worshiping a pantheon of different gods and requiring people in the communities that they lived in to go worship Caesar too as Lord. And then you have the synagogues in various different communities where the center of Judaism and teaching came into play. 
But they had taken God's law and made it perverted in a way that was so strict, so legalistic, that nobody could know this God of the Jews. Jesus comes onto the scene. He doesn't play either of those sides. Did you notice this? See, this is why Jesus is called a radical or a revolutionary, because he didn't live the way of the Romans, and nor did he live the way of the Jews. Now, the irony is he fulfilled the law of the Jews to a T. But he didn't do it the way the Pharisees did because they added on extra little things along the way because, well, you know, there are gray areas there. And so in the gray areas, we have to fill in the blanks and we have to make law out of gray areas. See, this is when you, have you ever been to a church that's legalistic? couple of you? Okay, good. If you haven't, you've been blessed, right? A legalistic church is the church that takes the gray areas of Scripture where God's Word doesn't really speak, and they make law based on their own opinion of what should be there. Are you hearing me? So should a woman wear a dress or pants in church? We must... Get really quiet. Well, it says a woman shouldn't dress like a man and a man shouldn't dress like a woman. Okay, what's the cultural context? Okay, so there are some things that have to have cultural context in that day and age, and there are other things that are timeless truths that no matter what time period or cultural context stand as truth, okay? Is adultery ever allowable anytime in Scripture? Okay, if somebody said yes, you're wrong. Okay, no, it's never allowed. And how long is the Bible, how long is the writing of the Bible? How long does it span? 1,500 years of writing, okay? Over those 1,500 years, one and a half millennia, does the teaching on adultery ever change? Definitely not. So guess what? It's always a sin. It is what we call a normative teaching. There are non-normative teachings in Scripture. A non-normative teaching is where it's taught one way here and a different way here. This is where the Bible get, or people get hung up on the Bible. Oh, it contradicts itself. This is where you have to really pull back the curtain, look at the cultural and historical context, and find out what's going on. Guess what? 2,000, 2,500, 3,000 years ago is quite a bit different than 21st century America. Do you know that? So there are some, exactly, there are cultural contexts you have to take into consideration. But here's what happens. In our day and age, in our culture, we allow certain worldly cultural norms to invade Scripture, so much so that they become the law rather than God's law determining what the culture should be like. We have this buzz on homosexuality now. The same thought can be put into play here. And I know this is a taboo topic. This may get us struck off of, of, of Facebook. What does God's word teach about homosexuality? Is it ever a normative practice from Genesis to Revelation? No. But there are certain scholars out there that make these exceptions because of X, Y, and Z. Actually, if you look at what they're doing, it is a mental gymnastics leap to get to where they're going. What does Occam's razor state? Does anybody even know Occam's razor? Okay, what is it? The, the, the simplest solution to a problem, logically, is an easier answer. 
The simplest solution to a problem is typically the answer. And oftentimes that should be the case. But we like to do these mental gymnastics. Well, how did the world get here? Well, there are these multiple universes out there that bang into each other every so often. That's how a new universe is created. Like the monkey and the clanging cymbal. We just don't know. But we do have scientific evidence for certain other aspects of universe that aren't so fanatical and, and way out there. Multiverse type things. I'm going way off. Let's bring it back in. Normative versus non-normative. God's normative teaching for his people is that he will always see them through. No matter their circumstance, situation, or where they are at any time period in human history. No matter if the world around you is crumbling, God will be with you if you are his and he is yours. Okay? So you can have peace of mind on that. And let me close it down with this. When I say close it down, it's a pastor's close it down. So we got about another half an hour. So, <laughs> all right. And I really wanted to get to this one. Change is hard, but necessary. Change is hard, but necessary. How many of you would agree with that statement? I see people... As a pastor, I've seen this a lot because people don't like change in the church specifically. And sometimes it can get so absurd. It's like, we don't want to change the color of the carpet or go from pews to chairs. Oh, I brought that up again. <laughs> I've been here for eight years and I remember early on in my time here, are you going to, there's rumors going around, you're going to take out the pews and put chairs in. Here we are almost a decade later, you still have pews, so you're in good shape, right? Oh. Change is hard, but it's necessary. Change is, now, that has nothing to do with pews and chairs, okay? Hear me out on this. Biblical scholar and commentator Dennis Olson writes this. Listen to what he says. Joshua doesn't simply step into the shoes of leadership as a new Moses. I want you to catch this, because I found this so interesting. Of course, I love reading the Word of God, and I love seeing things in a new perspective than I've ever seen them before. And I've read Numbers 27 over and over before in the past, studying the Torah, and I had never seen this before. I want you to hear me on this. So perk up your ears for a couple seconds and then doze off again if you need to. Joshua doesn't simply step into the shoes of the leadership as a new Moses. Do you notice what happens there? Moses gives only a portion of his authority. God says, give him a portion. Not all. Give him a portion of your authority. So God spoke to Moses face to face in a direct and unmediated way. But Joshua, how was Joshua to speak to God? So Moses would go off to the mountain and he'd have face-to-face -face time with God. Well, not technically face-to-face -face because he couldn't see God face-to-face -face or he he would die. But he had an intimate relationship with God that Joshua was not going to have. Not the same way, anyway. Joshua, on the other hand, will rely on a more indirect divine guidance through the priest, Eleazar, and his casting of lots using the Urim and the Thummim. If you want to know more about the Ur Ur Urim and the Thummim, look it up. I'm not going to go into that right now. It's a whole complicated thing. It's called casting lots, okay? They were like die, 
And you'd cast them, and you would hope that God would have his hand on the die to move them in a direction. Because I don't want to make the decision. God, it's up to you. That's basically how this worked, okay? The Urim and the Thummim. So how was Joshua to speak to God? He was going to go to Eleazar, the high priest. And the high priest, who was the advocate for the people of God, would go before God with the Urim and the Thummim. And would ask the question and cast these lots. It sounds like paganism to some degree, but it wasn't in this regard. This is how God said, this is how I want you to speak to me. Now, the epoch of Moses and this revelation of God's words to Israel was drawing to a close and would never be repeated again in Israel's history. hear Hear me on this. The way Moses met with God would never ever again be repeated in human history except through Christ. This is why Moses is oftentimes considered the Christ of the Jewish people. He is the one they hold in highest esteem. He is the one that was the most intimate with God. He's the one that interceded for the people of God. He's the one that is their other than God himself, the one they look up to. Whereas Christians, it's Christ. Change is hard, but it's necessary. The people were going to have to get their words from God differently. As they came into the promised land, and as they began to settle the land, they were going to have to settle the land and not live in the wilderness anymore. And that sounds like a great proposition, but I know some of you figuratively speaking, are still living in wilderness right now because the wilderness is more comfortable because it's familiar to you. And because you are afraid of change and because of anxiety and worry and fear of the what could come if I step out of this is so paralyzing that you are more comfortable staying in your wilderness instead of stepping into what God has called you to. Again, you've heard me say this from this stage before. I've, I wish I had a dime for every time somebody who was older came up to me and said, if I could go back and live my life over, I would live it differently, knowing what I know now. I would change some things. I'd be, I'd be more carefree. I wouldn't be so worried about money or possessions or climbing a corporate ladder. I wouldn't be so worried about any number of things that now looking back over the course of my life, I realize we're in vain. I spend more time with my kids. I'd love my wife more. I'd invest more in those things that are worth something instead of worthless. A very few people come to the end of their lives with no regrets. A lot of people come to the end of their lives because they stuck themselves or they felt stuck in a wilderness. Forty years is a long time. There was a generation that died in that wilderness and the promise was given to the next generation. Which generation are you? Are you the generation that's cursed to wander in the wilderness? Are you the next generation, no matter what your age is, that's willing to embrace the promises of God that he's called you to, knowing that it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. 
I, I, just this is one of those disconnects I think we have in, in, our, in, our, in our walk of faith is that once we come to Christ, it's going to get easy. No, it actually gets harder. And Jesus, Jesus actually spells this out for us, and there are a lot of false teachers out there in pulpits much like this telling you that this, this false teaching, that it's, it's, your life's going to get so much easier. Actually, you'll be, able, you'll be able to handle things a lot easier because you are, the one, you are with the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. You'll be able to walk through troublesome times and still have joy because you know that, that testing promotes perseverance. Perseverance helps to make you mature in the faith. You can look at this as a stepping stone to growth and maturity. So question is for you as we close and as our worship team comes forward, how do you face change? When was the last time you saw a healthy transition of power, authority, and leadership? It can happen in families too. Not just organizations, nonprofits, or churches. Transitions happen at all levels in all areas of society. Transition from one home to another home, from one family to another family. Marriage is the merging of two families. Guess what? That's a transition. How do you, how do you endure change? How can you have peace of mind that's necessary when change is imminent and evident in your life? I came across this story, and I want to close with this. Um, it's regarding a legend. So there's no historical fact to this, but a legend sometimes is based on bits and pieces of fact, but have somewhat been embellished over the years. When Leonardo da Vinci was painting his masterpiece, The Last Supper, he selected as the person to sit for the character of Christ a young man named Pietre Vanadelli. And I can't, I'm trying, I'll probably butcher that again, but he selected this young guy, vibrant, full of life, full of love in his facial features. Years passed before this great picture was completed, and uh, there was only one character left, according to the legend, and that was the character Judas Iscariot that he wanted to finish. The great painter noticed a man in the streets of Rome whom he selected as his model, and with shoulders far bent toward the ground, having an expression of cold, hardened, evil, saturine, the man seemed to afford the opportunities of a model terribly true to the artist's conception of Judas. He said, this has got to be my Judas. When in the studio, after approaching this guy, taking him back to Milan so he could set as the character the profligate began to look around, this guy began to look around as if recalling incidents of years gone by. Finally, he turned and with a look half sad, yet one which told how hard it was to realize that the change had taken place, he said, Maestro, I was in the studio 25 years ago and I set for the position of Christ. You have a choice of whether or not you follow the path of peace during life's transitions, or you can fight every stinking step of the way. But usually when God's leading the transition, though it may be difficult, it's always good. It's always good. There is peace in the godly transfer of authority and leadership. 
As I always mention, there are altars here on my right, your left. It's a place where you can come and pray. And basically, you're telling people, I'd like for somebody to come pray with me. We have prayer persons, prayer, a prayer team that would pray with you. If you need time alone with God, you can come to my left, your right. These altars are, for lack of better terms, during our COVID experience, proper social distancing altars. If you just want to be left alone, don't want anybody to pray with you, you just need your own space, come to that side. But if this message, if any part of the message has penetrated your heart, maybe you're in a desert and you don't want to live there anymore, once you make the transition into this land of promise that God's calling you to. Heavenly Father, we love you. You are good and holy and righteous and everything, honestly, that we are not. But you call us to you to be your children. Give us peace in the journey. Remind us that you precede us during times of transition into places you're calling us to go so that we can have the peace that passes understanding and the complete trust in following you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.